Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's January the 5th, 2022, from a rainy San Francisco in Northern California. Um, we're at the beginning of 2022. Some of us probably hope that it's a more reasonable or rational year than 2021. That didn't make a lot of sense. Historians of the future will work it out. Reason and irrationality are indeed the themes of this show. Uh, last year, I had the Harvard Law Professor Randall Kennedy on the show. He's actually coming back on the show next month talking about one of the most combustible, complicated, and emotional issues in America and perhaps in the world today, race and racism. Um, he has a new book out, uh, or he had a new book out, Say It Loud on Race, Law, History, and Culture. Uh, Randall Kennedy, though, stressed the fact that we need to be thoughtful rather than emotional when it comes to talking about race. As the New York Times review of the book said, on matters of race, uh, Randall Kennedy demands thinking over feeling. That dichotomy of thinking over feeling, or a supposed dichotomy, is one that has existed, I think, in Western science for certainly a couple of hundred years since Darwin, and it's one that most of us take for granted. We've certainly taken it for granted on this show. Um, I also had the African-American writer, polemicist Maisha Cherry on the show, like Kennedy talking about the history of racism in America and suggesting that anger as an emotion is the best tool for defeating racism in contrast with Randall Kennedy's focus on reason. So reason versus anger, are those the appropriate dichotomies, those parallel ways of conceptualizing how we think and act in the world? Not according to my guest today. Leonard Mladenow is a Los Angeles-based physicist. He's one of America's best-known scientists, and he's the author of a really interesting new book, a very provocative, one might even say emotional new book called, appropriately enough, Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. And he, I'm thrilled, is joining us from Los Angeles, California. He is in uh, South Pasadena. Leonard, welcome. Hey there. Uh, Randy Kennedy said that we should we should make uh, reason more important than emotions in dealing with complicated uh, issues like race. This is not a conversation about race. I'm sure you yourself have some strong feelings. Is Kennedy wrong to 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 uh, think in parallel about reason versus emotions, Leonard? Well, that is the, the view that that held, in, as you mentioned, uh, in science and Western society uh, for the last couple hundred years. And even from before that, it really dates back to Plato and uh, the Christian philosophies after that, 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 that rationality and emotion or feelings or passions are separate and, and, and that, that rationality is good and the others have to be controlled. But that's why I wrote the book, because in the last 10, 20 years, scientists have discovered that it's not really that way at all, that even when you think you're thinking rationally, logically, 
emotions are playing a, a, a major role in in your information processing. If we think of the brain as an information processor, it takes in data, which is your senses, but also your your beliefs, your memories, your experiences, and it calculates what you should do or what you should think next. And as as your brain is processing that information, it, it, it's not doing that in a vacuum. It's being influenced by the emotional state that it's in, and there's no way to separate them. Emotions are married to your thinking, whether you understand that or not. And the different emotional states that you might be in it, uh, will, will create a different end product from that processing, even though that you believe that processing is purely, even when you believe that processing is purely rational. Is this, um, is this a, a, a sacrilegious idea within science? Is this the kind of argument that you put forward in emotional? Is it the kind of thing that's going to piss off a lot of your colleagues who still cling to that Darwinian uh, dichotomy between feeling and reason? Well, it won't it won't piss off anyone who uh, who works in the field or is familiar with the recent research in emotion. Work in which field? In the field of emotion, uh, psychology or neuroscience of emotion. Uh, that field has really exploded and been revolutionized in the last couple decades, and 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 it's all in this direction that I mentioned. Uh, people think of emotion as a functional state of of the brain, so that the 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 brain. Is, is is making decisions and generating thoughts, but it's being influenced by by different emotions as it's doing that. So help so me understand um, how that works. So Leonard, let's go back to this, and, and it's not a formal debate because uh, I'm not sure if Maisha Cherry and uh, Randall Kennedy have, have ever spoken to one another um, or commented on each other's work. But race is obviously something that everyone in America thinks about, whether you're black, brown or white. Some people have very strong, most of us have very strong feelings. Um, should we, as Maisha Cherry argues, be led by anger because of this terrible history of injustice? Or should, as Kennedy suggests, uh, should, we, should we make... Uh, thinking should we place thinking over feeling or are we not really in charge of all this do we just simply have to accept the reality that emotions are always driving our our, our sense of reason well that's the case the, what you just said uh, there is no separating and there is there are techniques uh, strategies you can use to regulate your emotions if you think that they're getting out of hand but let's go back to the basics which is that emotions evolved for a reason uh, you you evolved disgust, for example, when we were living when we were living in the African savanna, and we didn't have books or um, any culture to tell us what's good and what's bad to eat. We may have uh, our parents guiding us, but as as you're hungry and you, you try different things, uh, we we developed the emotion of disgust to, to keep us prevent us from eating things that were poisonous. We developed fear to keep us from walking up to a bear and saying hello. <laughs> Instead, we we, we run away from it. So these emotions all develop for a reason and they all have different effects on your thinking. So anger, for example, one of the hallmarks of anger, one of the ways that anger affects your thinking is it, 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 it drives you to action. So as you're analyzing a situation in your mind, even when you're doing it rationally, uh, that, that analysis depends on, on the 
the, the data that you're bringing in, the, the, your, your goals, your memories, your beliefs, and, and how much do you, which ones do you weigh as important? Which ones do you, are you skeptical about? And as you're, as you're putting all that into the process of doing your rational calculation, uh, the, the, those decisions, those unconscious uh, decisions by your brain uh, affect what the final outcome is of your thinking. So if you're in an anger mode and you're analyzing a situation, you're more likely to conclude that you should take action. If you are in a disgust mode, you might ha have a different conclusion with the same, based on the same information. Uh, you, you make, as I said, Darwin, or when you go back before Darwin, as you suggested to Plato, um, and the other founding fathers, and they were all, of course, founding fathers of Western philosophy and of science, this attempt to partition thinking, reason, and passion or irrationality, whatever other words we want to use. Is there a, a gendered component to this, Leonard? This obsession with reason, some people have suggested, particularly associated with that classically 19th century Victorian figure of Charles Robert Darwin seems very male. Is there any truth to that? <laughs> well, I'm not a sociologist, so I don't want to uh, get into... Well, you're a general scientist, Leonard, and you've made your name in being able to translate complicated science into everyday language. So you can, you can speculate. Well, certainly uh, in Darwin's day and for many, many decades after him and until just recently, all the science in every field was was done by men and women who were talented and interested in science had a hard time uh, getting trained and getting themselves known or getting credit for, for what they did. So I guess you would say that since this came from that period, it would be a male, a male point of view. But what Darwin was really trying to do in his theory of emotion was to understand how emotions evolved and, and how he could explain that within his theory of evolution. And he concluded that there were some basic emotions, uh, six basic emotions, anger, fear, surprise, joy, and, and that those emotions were shared between us and lower animals, or I should call them non-human animals. I don't like the term lower animals. And he studied many animals to, to, and, uh, to understand how emotions played a role in their lives and how that might relate to the, the role that they play in our lives. And so he came up with a theory where there are these basic emotions that are very distinct and they're unitary. There's uh, there's only one kind of fear. All fear of all different things is the same and that it's universally shared amongst humans. And these ideas, it turns out, were all wrong. They 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 they're, they seem correct intuitively they, on, on a superficial level. But when you look deeper into it, we realize that, for example, there is not just one fear. The fear of a spider or a scorpion is different in your brain than the fear of, say, suffocation. And scientists have actually investigated the processes in your brain that produce those different kinds of fear. And the, the border between different emotions, say, between the emotion of fear and anxiety is not a sharp border. It's a, it's a fuzzy border. So what we call different emotion categories is, is really to be taken with a grain of salt because there's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And um, Darwin believed that these emotions played crucial roles in, in non-human animals because they don't have the same rational thought that we do and they don't have language and they have to have a way of communicating to each other and of reacting to a situation without logically reasoning it through and emotions serve that purpose. And he felt that in humans, emotions had been somewhat outmoded, that we've outgrown them because we have this rational thinking and we have language. So we don't really need that more primitive 
way of looking at things through, uh, or way of um, determining our behavior, which was emotion. They were more like a vestige, like uh, the appendix. But he's actually wrong because, as I said, emotions are a, a state of mind that influence the, what you think is the pure logical reasoning that, you, that you're going through. They by, by influencing the inputs to that logical reasoning and, and the weights that you put on different goals and on different data, you, you come out through that logical reasoning with, with different outcomes. But what's important is that studies have shown time after time that, that people are not aware or often not aware of that influence. It's subtle and it's on the unconscious level, the influence of emotions on your thinking. And so they so they don't really, they think that that they're ex executing pure logical thinking, but they really aren't. Is it possible to execute pure logical thinking? Are you suggesting that? I'm suggesting that it's not, the way our brains is, are built, it's not possible to do that. Um, yeah, our brains are, um, not, are not computers like the silicon computers. Right, are. yeah. And, and even so, the silicon, see, if you look at a computer that's going to process something, what, what you're missing in that picture is that there's a programmer who's putting in the data and telling it what to process. And it's putting in uh, right. and it's choosing which programs to use and, and, and the purpose of the processing. All that is, comes from the outside when you have a computer. But we and our brains have to do that ourselves on the inside. And that's the role that emotions play. It, it, uh, that's where emotions play a strong role is in determining the whole setup and context of your processing. Leonard, when it comes to computers, didn't Ada Lovelace, who invented software, remind us of this, as well as Alan Turing? I'm sure you, as a very distinguished physicist, are very familiar with much of the work of Turing. So this is not a surprise to physicists, that you're saying. Well, what, what isn't a surprise? That emotions are programmed in. Ah, uh, yeah, well, because anyone who mechanical in, intelligence to smart machines or what we think of as smart machines. Anyone who's programmed a computer, and I, I did in my earlier days in physics, I, I had to uh, write computer programs. Uh, and anyone who's ever done that would know that the role of, uh, of emotions is a crucial role because um, just imagine, for example, programming a robot to, to, to react to the world. You can have a, a, a whole series of commands telling the robot what to do if it encounters a certain situation, but you're never going to envision all the possible situations that the robot can encounter. And a computer, if it, if it reaches a situation where there's no rule about an action to take place when a situation occurs, this computer is not going to do it. It's not going to do anything. It's just going to sit there. So if you program for this robot all these situations in which, the, for instance, the robot should leave the room for its own safety, but you forget of an electrical fire, an electrical fire happens, the robot's just going to sit there. So We hope, we what, hope, Leonard, if, if, if the robot gets up and leaves the room, then we're in trouble, right? <laughs> well, but uh, then the, what, what emotion does, it's a more generalized way of, of understanding the world. So the, the emotion gets triggered by a much more general, vague, let's say, set of conditions. Yeah, it'd be interesting it, to think of as, um, you know, we think of AI and smart machines as being reasonable creatures and a lot of debate about whether or not they'll ever acquire reason um, outside our own programming language and instruction, whether the same is true of emotions, whether we can imagine emotional machines as opposed to reasonable machines. Um, we, um, uh, uh, Paul, you, um, you, you're distinguished for a lot of very, uh, sorry, Leonard, you're distinguished for a, very, a lot of very popular books, The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives. You also 
co-authored something with Stephen Hawking, The Grand Design. You're interested in theological issues and in the God question. Of course, it was something that dominated Darwin. He wrestled with uh, his Christianity in terms of discovering theories of evolution. What does this theory of the emotional and, and, and your new book, what does it suggest to people who believe in God and who believed in the idea that God created us? Does it perhaps suggest that God is a little bit more emotional than some Christians or, or some other religious people like to think? Well, I, I, I think that we don't get very far trying to understand the concept of God through science. So what what studying the emotions does is it teaches you about what humans are how what our place is in the animal world and what controls the way we think and feel and, or i shouldn't say feel but think and and, and behave so it, it 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 explains those things i don't think it explains the connection with a with a, a greater being or a creator i think that the whole idea of, of thinking of a creator uh, or an all-powerful, all-knowing God is that uh, it, it that that entity can do what it what it wants to do and has its own reasons that we can't even understand. And so, if you, it's hard to draw conclusions from understanding how emotion uh, emotions affect our thinking. It's hard to draw conclusions about God from that. I, I believe. Be wonderful to think that if there was a God, that this God was highly emotional and irrational. That would uh, be an interesting. Well, the, the old gods of the Greeks and and uh, and, yes, and yes, mythologies, yes. They, they were they were like that. They were, and, and it's interesting that brings up another interesting point because see, one reason emotions have a bad name is that they can go wrong sometimes. Uh, so can your eyes. You have optical illusions, and yet we don't say the eyes are something to be suppressed, but people. They look at cases where emotions maybe uh, uh, mis misguided you, misguided people, and they're often very dramatic cases. And I talk about a lot of them in the book because it's interesting sometimes to see how something works by seeing what happens when it doesn't work. But we have to remember that Darwin was right, and emotions did. Uh, he was right about evolution, and emotions evolved for a reason. They didn't evolve because uh, they're counterproductive and they and they make us do silly things. Uh, but of course, in the in the civilized or uh, modern world, high tech world, where we're all interconnected with thousands of other people is so different than the world in which emotions originally evolved, where we lived in communities of 20, 30, 50 people. And we just see a, uh, no more than a couple dozen people or a few dozen people on any day or in our lives. Whereas today we interact with hundreds or thousands of people and we're bombarded by the media and it's such a different life. So sometimes emotions go wrong, and we talk. I talk about sometimes, that. Sometimes, Leonard, I think they go wrong more than sometimes. Probably. Well, I think, but if you think about it, one of the points of the book is <clears throat> there's a small percentage of the time when they go wrong. They're you don't realize it, but in your day to day, minute to minute life, emotions are are guiding you. At you know, you're, when you decide to get up out of bed, that's that comes from emotions. When you when you adjust the volume. Uh, on the uh, on the microphone that that comes from emotion. Oh, I'm making a mistake with my daughter telling her to get up because it's unreasonable to to lie in bed beyond eleven in the morning. I should use. I wouldn't microphone. say that. I love lying in bed beyond eleven, and, and and interviews in the morning before my brain is awake are very hard. Well, Leonard, <laughs> next time we do an interview, we'll do it from your bed. Um, I'm curious. You're talking to me from um, Pasadena in Los Angeles. 
Los Angeles, of course, being the city of movies, the city of theater. How does our fascination with acting connect with your theory of feeling shaping our thinking? Um, does Hollywood appear less, more or less frivolous in terms of your theory? Well, in writing this book, I've grown to uh, have a, a much greater respect, actually, for actors who can yeah. um, portray emotion in an authentic way, because I know that a lot of the emotion... Uh, authentic emotion or processes, convincing? Hmm? Or are those the same thing? Well, okay. Uh, I wouldn't say they're exactly the same thing, but but they're related. I think if something's authentic, it's probably convincing, but if something can be convincing without being authentic. Mm. So, uh, but... I know that a lot of the, the uh, processes of, that have to do with emotion are, occur on the unconscious level, and, and that means that by definition is beyond your control. So uh, to, to really give an authentic and or convincing uh, portrayal, I think that actors have to really d dig into themselves and genuinely, by memory or some other way, be experiencing those feelings, thinking about something maybe in their lives that, that, that would elicit that emotion. And that... I have a lot of respect for that, to be able to do that on a call. Anyone in particular? Who's your favorite actor or actress? Uh, I, I don't have any any favorite. You don't? No. Your favorite no. movie? Uh, oh, well, I have a favorite movie, but it's almost embarrassing to say. Uh, well, that's even it, more it, reason it, to say it, Leonard. What's yeah, your no, favorite it's movie? Not, yeah, it's not exactly uh, the latest movie. It was Casablanca, and I... I huh. uh, and I, I love... Well, there's a lot of emotion in that, and, and, and we could have a, a separate show on the role of emotion and reason in Casablanca, especially the final scene. Um, I well, am talking my with... my parents uh, went through the Holocaust, I think it has a special resonance for me. Right. Well, I want to talk actually about that uh, after the break. We are talking with Leonard Mlodinow, the uh, author, a very distinguished American physicist and the author of Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. I, I was going to say how thinking shape our feelings. That would have been a, a Freudian misreading of Leonard's new book. Um, we're going to take a short break, Leonard, and then we're going to come back. And I want to talk more specifically about the arguments in the book. So hold on, everyone. We'll see you in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub 
live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Leonard uh, Mlodinow, the author of Emotional, really interesting, important new book about how our feelings shape our thinking. I want to talk more specifically. First half, we talk quite broadly. I want to talk more specifically um, about uh, the book, about the arguments um, in the book. Uh, Leonard has been quite busy uh, articulating this. He had a piece uh, in The Guardian recently, More Than a Feeling, Why Our Emotions Are crucial to the way we think and something in the Atlantic, what we get wrong uh, about uh, our emotions. Uh, and in that Atlantic piece, um, he refers to a very distinguished British physicist, uh, um, uh, Paul uh, Dirac. Uh, and I, I'm curious, um, Leonard, what it is about Dirac that is in some ways central to your argument? Well, Dirac was a very uh, unusual and fascinating physicist, one of the top physicists of the century, of last century. And he was known for being purely rational and, and uh, really uh, mathematically brilliant and a master of logical thinking and rational analysis. So what really struck me was that when late in his life, uh, he was asked what his, the key is that, that Theoretic, to being a good theoretical physicist, he said, be guided by your emotion. So I, I'm, to me, that tells you that, that even the person who in a field which is known to, for mathematical precision, right, physics, which, which should be A to B to C kind of a reasoning, even in that field, this titan of, of, of science says that emotion is important. And that, you know, why, why does he say that? It's because, as I said, when you're doing your logical reasoning, that's not being done in a vacuum. There's choices that you're having to make into what, what you consider and, 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 and what you weigh as important. And these are influenced by your emotion. You have to, even in picking a problem in physics, it's like, it's like you're in a forest or you're taking a hike and you're making choices about where you want to go. And, and you're looking at the smell, you're looking at the sights and you're smelling things and, and you just go one way or another. And that's based on your feelings. And Dirac was smart enough to, to realize that even at a time when people were thinking you should separate uh, rational thought, you can and should separate rational thought, he realized that you couldn't do that. And it was really important in, in his analysis, because even when you're doing mathematical analysis, uh, there, there are feelings that, that enter into your decision making as you go along. It's interesting with Dirac, because uh, I was looking at his Wikipedia page. Um, he was a great physicist, but, uh, and I'm quoting from the Wikipedia page, he was regarded by his friends and colleagues as unusual in character. Uh, Einstein wrote of Dirac, I have trouble with Dirac. Uh, this balancing on the dizzying path between genius and madness is awful. Uh, in, another less, in another letter, uh, he wrote, I don't understand Dirac at all. Do you think 
to be a great scientist requires a a degree of madness. <laughs> it, it well, it does in in a way. And that my last book was called Elastic, and it's about where ideas and creativity comes from. And there's a fine line I learned in writing that book between madness and creativity. You see, it it, it it's very safe for an organism to continue to act in the way that it's previously acted to, to act in a conventional manner that that's that that has been worked out or that the, that the organism has experienced and you just keep doing the same thing and you're fine until you reach a new situation and when you reach a new situation you have to figure out how to handle that new situation and the safest uh, ideas are usually the the conventional ideas the the ideas that have been tr are tried and true that's why they call them tried and true because they usually work and and they use that usually works, but to make real progress, let's say in an in, in intellectual adventure of physics, you need to have wild, crazy ideas. You need to consider ideas that at first sound stupid or silly and not be worried about, you know, what other people will think of you. And that translates to people's behavior also often being that way, where their, their whole personality is more unfiltered and wild compared to someone who's more conventional. But that's really where the progress in getting new ideas and and inventing new things comes from it's from people that are on that end of the spectrum of letting in uh, or their or their brain again it comes from the unconscious but their brain lets in crazy ideas that other people's brains might filter out as being too nutty to to, to consider because you can't if you really considered every crazy idea that your unconscious mind generates you'd be frozen because your unconscious mind is generating a lot of them and and and, and a lot of them are just um unworkable but you have filters in your brain. This is what Elastic was about. You have filters in your brain that take out the ones that are unlikely to succeed based on your past experience and, and only lets in the most promising. And, but that cuts out a lot of the most brilliant ideas. And so Dirac was crazy. I mean, in some ways, like he he invented, he, he, it, one of the things I loved about his work was the, the one thing that he did was he invented a kind of mathematical function that was mathematically illegal. And he didn't care, he used it anyway and mathematicians afterwards were left to kind of clean it up and show that actually you could justify what he did. But, but he came up with this brilliant, very weird looking idea that worked in physics. And then the mathematicians who want to make everything uh, exactly uh, rigorous worked out why it worked later. That's the is kind of thing. He, um, he wasn't constrained. Right. Is, is, is Dirac's science somehow reflected perhaps in his personalities? We've, as as um, uh, uh, Einstein said, he was strange, weird, perhaps a little crazy. Um, the sort of post, and, and I'm getting into some very uh, deep waters here, so correct me if I make a complete fool of myself, Lenin. But um, uh, Dirac, uh, according to Wikipedia, at least made fundamental contributions to the early development of both quantum mechanics and quantum electrodynamics. We're living in perhaps the beginnings of a, a kind of quantum age, quantum mechanics. I, I know a little bit about quantum computing. Does, does quantum physics represent a kind of irrational leap when it comes to making sense of things? Well, that's interesting. Quantum physics is, I wouldn't say it's irrational, but it, it's, it's very odd. It's and very odd, right. From what I understand, it, 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 it makes assumptions which, in our mind, don't make any kind of reasonable scientific sense. And I yeah. use those words carefully. Right. It, it, um, 
the the laws of quantum theory don't seem to make sense in our everyday macro world. But the, 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 and perhaps quantum... you might, Leonard, since you're on it and you're a great popularizer of, of complicated issues, very, very briefly define in your mind what quantum physics actually is or means. Okay, well, quantum physics describes the laws that are important, active, or notable on the on the scale of subatomic particles, atoms, uh, molecules, and very very small scale of such things. And those laws, it turns out, are are much different than the laws that we, or that than the world that we experience in the everyday macroscopic world. It turns out that you can show that those laws operating on the atomic and subatomic world, uh, when experienced in macroscopic objects, give the experiences we have. So there's no disconnect there. But if you were to exist as a little person in the atomic world, life would be much different. For example, the, uh, you cannot be at the same place uh, uh, and have a certain velocity at the same time. That's called the uncertainty principle, that certain certain parameters or certain measurements that we make of a, a way of, sort of describing ourselves uh, cannot be made simultaneously, that, that it doesn't make sense to even talk about something being here and moving in a certain speed at, at the same time. And there's a lot of different laws like that that, that happen in the quantum world that, that, that don't make any sense in the classical world. You can have particles that are far apart from each other, but, but somehow affect, affect each other and are in a state where, where what happens to one affects what you would measure if you measured the other one. And so it's, it, you, can't, you can't separate uh, it, um, different, different particles. You can't tell where they are or how fast they're going. And it's all done in a more probabilistic uh, fashion. And it turns out that that's the way the subatomic world works. But when you add up all those very uncertain things happening, uh, but but you have trillions and trillions of them that make up our macroscopic world. Somehow all the weirdness washes out and gets averaged out and we get the, the Newtonian world that we experience. So we're still in the Newtonian world. It's just the, the Newtonian world with a with a twist. Well, the Newtonian world is, a, let's say, an approximation. It, it, your eyes are not your, your eyes are and your senses are not powerful enough to detect what's really going on. You, you're only detecting things on a very high level. Let's say as if you're flying in an airplane and you're looking down at a forest and you see green, but you, maybe you don't see the individual trees. You don't know that there are trees there. You just know that some parts of the, of the landscape are brown, some are black, some are blue, water, or some are green. But that's because our eyes are not that powerful. But now you, you, you start using scientific instruments or you use a telescope from that plane and you go, oh, wow, that green is not a it's not a steady green. There's actually little things making it up. Those are called trees. And now you have a whole new world exposed to you. That's kind of what physicists did around the turn of the 20th century when they discovered the laws of quantum theory. Fascinating stuff. We are talking with Leonard Mladenau, the uh, uh, author of a new book just out. Well, I think it's it's formally out today. It won't be available in the stores till next week because of a shortage of paper. Emotional, how feelings shape our thinking. Leonard is one of America's leading physicists, very distinguished, used to teach at Caltech. And he also has a Twitter page, which I discovered this morning, with lots of emojis. Um, uh, Leonard, you know that there's an ongoing debate about whether social media is destroying our culture and our brains. Um, what does emotional suggest about this social media revolution? And the use of emojis on um, 
on on platforms like Twitter and Instagram. Are we wrong to believe that emojis are actually rather unhealthy for all these young people addicted to social networks? I think that emojis are very important. Uh, that the whole point of uh, the book is a, is how emotion affects your your thinking and, and how can you express okay when when as Darwin figured out when we talk we we make facial expressions that portray our emotion also our our voice changes so what happens when you translate that to text messaging you lose all that and emojis are there to put that back to to so indicate. there's something almost that. I mean, everyone, a lot of people believe, a lot of critics, we've had a lot of shows about this, a lot of critics believe that social media and emojis are unnatural. You're suggesting actually the reverse is true. Well, I'm, I'm not saying social media is natural, but, but emojis. And, but emojis, and, which emojis are, are sort of are, central and the way we represent ourselves as smiling, happy, unhappy people. Yes, yes. I mean, I could. what if I say, um, I love Kenan? Or what if I say... I love I I love Keenan. Those two things, those two sentences. Even though I'm not an actor, I hope you wouldn't they, win an Oscar for either of those, Leonard. Sorry, <laughs> you wouldn't win an Oscar for either of yeah. those. Yeah, well, that's why I respect actors. But but uh, one was meant to be a positive, and the other some more like critical or sarcastic. Uh, and how do you get that across in text? It's probably not much better than my acting. But if you put the emoji there, then people know what you're talking about. Leonard, we we need to end now. You mentioned at the beginning of the show that you are the child of Holocaust survivors. Um, uh, Your father weighed 80 pounds when he was liberated from uh, Buchenwald. Um, This seems to have had a, a big impact on you. When you think of the Holocaust, we've done a lot of shows about it. For example, this show featuring... um. Historian Wendy Lauer, she wrote a book called The Ravine about this photograph of the murder of a mother and a child in the Ukraine. How do you make sense of emotional when it comes to your feelings about what your parents went through and the experience of the Jews and many other persecuted peoples, particularly in the Second World War, but throughout history? Well, as a, the, a child of uh, parents who went through the Holocaust, I have a very deep um, emotional connection to that. It's um, and it's something that is um, outside of my conscious control. Um, I, I can't say I I can make sense of what happened uh, in 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 the Holocaust or in any of the other genocides that have happened since or or before. Uh, the only way I look at it as a scientist is to understand that that you know humans are primates, and primates have certain characteristics. <laughs> we like to think of ourselves, and that's what the whole false idea of rational thought you know um, was based on that we're somehow superior to other animals, but we're we're just just another species of primate, and many primates are violent and and cruel, and and we have that within ourselves as well. And I'm hoping that. Uh, that people wanting to rise above that and, and learn about how their how their mind works and and um, and understand uh, what our place is in 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 the world that we might uh, have people make choices to to resist those kinds of um, instincts uh, that are very destructive. 
We could do another show on agency, uh, which we don't have time for, Leonard. I, I want to thank you so much. A, a wonderful conversation, very far-ranging, very much uh, uh, in keeping with your reputation as one of America's lead, not only leading scientists, but leading popularizers of science, making it accessible for non-scientific people like myself. Your new book, Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking, I think is bound to be a bestseller. Congratulations on the book. As I said, you are... In Tinsel, in Tinsel Town, Leonard, uh, what else should people be reading or maybe even watching as they wait for your book to come into the bookstores in early 2022? Well, uh, since we were just in addition about, to Casablanca, of course. Yeah, uh, to have and have not is pretty good too. Um, I would say uh, one of my favorite books, and this is on the theme we were talking about, is, is um, The Periodic Table by Pr uh, Primo Levi. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful book. And that touches, uh, that obviously is about the Holocaust, but it's also about science. And so, as a sci he wrote it as a scientist, as a chemist. He was a chemist, yes. right. So that, that would be one that I would, uh, that really moved me and inspired me as someone who wants to mix science and humanity. Mm. Might be interesting, Leonard, to have you back on the show just to talk about that. It's a wonderful book. I haven't read it for years, but I'd love to reread it. Well, Leonard, I really want to thank you for a wonderful conversation. Happy New Year. Keep well. Keep remaining both emotional and rational. And we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you again. Sounds great. Thank you.